HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm in Vermont, a producer of award-winning handmade cheese from goat and cow milk. For more information, visit ConsiderBardwellFarm.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Before we start the show, just a shout out to Cookies, the band from the top of the show, as well as the break music. Their release uh, for their first and newest album at Baby's All Right Tonight. Stop by. I, I know I'll be there supporting Ben Sterling. The rest of the band, well, on to today's show. Very excited to have... Gail Simmons of Food and Wine, of Top Chef, of FYI Network's The Feed here at Heritage Radio. Hi. How's it going? It's great. It's going great. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah. Well, we're going to go through your whole life right now, figure it all out for you if you haven't. Um, The most exciting thing is, you know, I I know you're a Canadian, grew up in Toronto, but I want to skip a little ahead about these family trips to South Africa. Oh, sure. Wow, we're we're jumping right in. Oh, yeah. Just because I have become, I've always been, since college... A big Biltong fan. Oh, my goodness. And it's proliferated New York in this wild way lately with uh, Jaunty Jacobs, which is a store, I think, in Tribeca, West Village, mm-hmm. and uh, Brooklyn Biltong. But t- tell me about that part of your life. Wait, first of all, I don't even think I'm familiar with Brooklyn Biltong. Oh. And I'm a Brooklynite, and that upsets me. So we're going to have to get back to oh, that. Oh, yeah. No, I was That's looking. Crazy. I was trying to bring some in today, what? but I've eaten my stockpile. Fine. I apologize. Um, my God. I will say right here that I have been trying to spread the word about Biltong for a decade and people have been laugh- laughed at me. And then, of course, all the um, artisanal jerkies started popping up in these here parts. And now Biltong is a big deal and people understand it. And I finally feel a little bit redeemed uh, for my love of Biltong. Um, my father is South African. I spent a lot of my childhood in South Africa, you know, on on family trips. We would go back fairly frequently. My father's entire family lived there, Uh, his brothers, all their children, my grandparents, my cousins. Um, And so, you know, we went back maybe five or six times throughout my childhood. And Biltong was always, I mean, I have a lot of amazing, very, very specific food memories from South Africa growing up. But Biltong was by far my favorite treat. If you haven't had it, it is like beef jerky in that it is dried cured meat but it is it's actually salted and dried and it doesn't have the the sugar and the sweetness that american beef jerky or or other meat jerkies have it is chewy it comes in actually a couple of forms uh a sausagey form called boerwurst like that's like a boerwurst like a sausage and then um, strips that can be then chopped down into little pieces. And we would buy literally sides, like pieces of meat, large piece of meat, sort of like the tenderloin, um, 
and cryovac them and bring them home and try to get past the dogs at the airport <laughs> with them, uh, which we were successful about most of the time, and uh, and feast on them throughout the year. We'd keep them in the freezer and break them out for special occasions, and it's like still my favorite snack. It really is one of those things that when I get to have really good biltong, it reminds me of home. Well, I'll try to get you the Brooklyn biltong. Thank you. you I'll just go that. out and find it. Absolutely. I think it's brooklynbiltong.com. Yeah, that Big shout out. is Been, probably what it is. But it's also kind of blown up because of the paleo thing too yes, you know sure. it's pure just like protein. jerky it's yeah. protein and and there's a lot less sugar in biltong than in most jerky because a lot of jerky has you know syrup or sugar um that, that kind of helps to cure it and this doesn't so it's salty and chewy and beefy um the great thing about biltong in south africa at least is that it's made from all sorts of meats i mean ultimately it was created right to preserve meat from the hunt from from game uh, when you're out in the bush, as they call it in South Africa. And so it was made with ostrich and it was made with kudu and it was made with, um, you know, all sorts of buck and uh, impala and things like that. My favorite for years was actually chicken bultong, huh. I don't know which people would get freaked that. out about because people would be like, you can't eat raw chicken. It's sort of raw. It's really, really good. Yeah. Well, I'm going to keep my eye out. Maybe we'll do a trade. I don't, I don't know if they have yeah. it here. But um, the oh. one in the West Village is, is I don't know if it's related to, but very much in the style of the place that we used to get it from in Cape Town. Amazing. Joe Bear and Monty's, yeah. We'll go back to Canada. Sure. Born and raised in Toronto. I was. So a lot of people, I think, know the cuisine of Montreal a lot better. You know, talk about poutine, even the bagels. What is Toronto to Montreal? Uh, arch enemies. <laughs> Goddamn Canadians right. and Maple Leafs. I know we are, right? The, exactly. Um, Toronto, look, Toronto's a much bigger city, and it's a very cosmopolitan city. It has um, what I believe, I believe it's the fourth largest city in North America, actually. Um, fourth only to Mexico City, New York, and L.A. So Toronto is a huge city. I, I believe it surpassed Chicago very recently in its size in the entire, sort of, if you take into account the entire city. It's a massive, sprawling city. Huge... Um, multicultural center, massive Caribbean population, Portuguese population, Greek population, um, and what I believe is the largest Chinese population outside of China um, per in, in a city. I, know. It, it I always has, hear of the amazing dim sum places. It, it, there is amazing dim sum. There's like five different Chinatowns um, that make Flushing, Queens look like a tiny village. Um, it's really extraordinary. It's a really interesting city, but it doesn't necessarily have its own sort of Canadian identity the way that Montreal does because Montreal and Quebec are French Canadian and they have very, a very different cuisine. When I think of Canadian cuisine, I think of French French Canadian yeah. cuisine. Um, I also, my mother's side of the family is from Montreal and I went to McGill. So that's food that's also very special to me. Montreal bagels, uh, tortier, poutine, um, uh, tarte au sucre, you know, uh, sugar tarts, uh, all those things that, that, are really part of the Canadian food diction. Um, Toronto is a great city. There's really great high-end food. There's a lot of interesting food to explore. But I don't think, I can't think of something that's really specifically Torontonian in its food. The ingredients in the province of Ontario are amazing. Peaches, corn, the produce is out of this world, though, for sure. So you, you have this global perspective and palate, which, which kind of makes sense for when you went to McGill to study anthropology. Right. You know, because you want, you want to learn about the etymology, the origins of certain things, and happen to take Spanish at the same yes. time, because, you know, North America wasn't enough for you. Right. Well, actually, interestingly, the reason I took Spanish, so I, I majored in anthropology, and I had a minor in Spanish language um, and literature, but that was because I was actually part of a bigger liberal arts program at McGill called Humanistic Studies, and to complete your degree, you had to take a foreign language, and in Canada, French is not considered foreign because that is our other first language. So I had to take a, another language. I spoke French. My French was pretty strong, but that would have been too easy for all of us because most people speak a little, at least a little bit of French in Canada. So I had to take a foreign language. And um, I figured, well, what's a language that might be easy because I speak French already and um, is a language that a lot of people speak in the world? And so I came up with Spanish. And amazingly, Spanish is hard to come by in Canada, even though we're so close to the States and it's so widely spoken here. Um, there's very little Spanish in Canada, um, certainly in Montreal, because there's so much French. So uh, it was great to speak Spanish. And then I got to, you know, not only 
travel the world speaking Spanish because there's, you know, I, I lived in Spain for a year. Um, but when I, in my later years, went into the kitchen, I realized that I kind of had the best of both, both worlds unknowingly. I could speak French with all my, the fancy French chefs that I worked for, but speak Spanish with the people who I actually worked alongside of, which also comes in very handy. Yeah, and that bridge of having those backgrounds and having those languages certainly helped you in the kitchen. But I yeah. want to go back to Spain. Oh, yeah. And sure. Israel, because your travels informed, obviously, everything that you do these days. Yes. Um, why were you in Spain and why were you in Israel? Sure. Um, well, I went to Spain for a year of college uh, for my you know, for my junior year of college, the way a lot of people here have the privilege of doing. Uh, when I went to Spain, I lived in the south in Sevilla, in, in Seville, Andalusia. And um, I chose it specifically because um, it, it. I wanted to go somewhere where I could totally immerse myself in the language. It was very hard to learn Spanish as my third language. I confused it a lot with French, and I couldn't find that many people to speak it with in Quebec, in Montreal, when I was living there. And so I knew the only way, especially you know after a certain age, it's hard to learn a new language. So I wanted to go somewhere I could really, really learn the language. And I went with two of my close girlfriends, and we thought we could just you know learn the history. And, and, and Seville is really the, the cultural capital of Spain and the historical capital of Spain. That's where the Catholic kings were based, where Columbus came, where the biggest Gothic cathedral in the world lives. Um, you know, that's where the Inquisition started. There's just such incredible history there. And we got there to find out that most of the other kids on our program, because they were from the States and had all just we were all, I think, 20 when we got there. It was the first place they'd ever been where uh, they could drink legally. <laughs> we, being from Canada and in Montreal, the drinking age was 18, were not so excited to be drinking legally because we'd been drinking legally for a long time and it wasn't that big a deal. Um, so while they spend most of their time um, shit-faced, I can say that because oh, we're on Heritage Radio, yeah. <laughs> uh, we actually took on learning the language and, and seeing a lot of the country. So... I had a lot of time to explore, and it was an extraordinary year of my life. Um, it's not something that in Canada a lot of people did back then. Like, going on your junior year abroad here is a thing. Um, people do it far more often from the States. There's so many programs. You can go anywhere in the world. In Canada, it was still kind of rare to be able to take a year um, and, and go abroad. It they, was they a great privilege. They secular. They do. Can't, exactly. They're like, let's Canadians. secede from everybody else. Yes. So, yeah. So, um so it was a great privilege and an amazing, amazing year. I mean, Spain is, you know, an extraordinary country with very interesting food and history. And, you know, it's just beautiful. And we had a great time. So that's why I lived in Spain. Um, and then I actually was in Israel two years before that. Um, when I was 18 years old, I spent a little over two months in Israel. When I graduated high school, somehow my parents let me run off to the Middle East with my boyfriend at the time. And we worked on a kibbutz um, for, for about six or eight weeks and then traveled around the country and went into Egypt a little bit. Um, I worked in the chicken farm for a long time. And that I worked in the, on the chicken farm for on this kibbutz and then worked in the fields for a little while in the avocado and the lychee fields and ended up in the kitchen where I was a dishwasher. And then I ended up being the girl who made the eggs every morning for the 600 people living on this kibbutz. And that was my first experience in a commercial kitchen cooking for other people. I mean, talk about volume. Yes. But then, you know, when you come to New York, often they say, do you have New York experience? And then you don't because you're coming to New York to cook. It's, That's a, it's true. a very funny thing. It's kind of like, you know, to have a house, you have to have a credit card to have a credit card. You have to have, you know, yes, it's, it's you that, need credit to get. But yeah, I understand. But coming to New York after cooking eggs for 600, what was that shock like walking into Le Cirque 2000, Vong? Uh, totally different. Um, so, you know, I, I, I cooked those eggs. I was like a short order cook uh, when I was 18. And then I went to college and, and went, after college I graduated, went back to Toronto for a year and I was writing and I realized I wanted to cook. And um, ultimately I wanted to write about food. I didn't, I knew I wanted to, I didn't want to be a chef. I knew I wanted to write about food, but I felt very strongly uh, because of advice I'd been given from a lot of smart people I worked for that if I really wanted to write about food, I had to actually know something about food, which was sort of a revelation. Uh, you can't just start writing and become a food writer. You need to actually know what you're talking about. So I moved to New York and I went to culinary school first and culinary school was sort of like food camp. I mean, it was challenging and I learned so much, but it was so much fun. And it was, you know, not really reality. It, 
of what a real kitchen is like because it's contained and every day you make one beautiful meal and you're making it with 15 people and you're all working together and um, there are moments of it that they try to teach you to replicate a real kitchen but you can't get that experience until you actually get into a professional kitchen during dinner service and you see that rush and that uh, sense of urgency. So even though I'd had that cooking experience back in Israel five years earlier, um, going into a real kitchen, especially the kitchens I chose to work in, for better or worse, which were very high-end, um, very large kitchens, um, it was still a total shock. Um, I got my ass handed to me, if that's what you're asking, Michael. <laughs> no, no, that's what I was asking. Well, as you should, yeah. as every young cook should have happen in their first kitchen. That sort of, I mean, you need it, not because... You need to be hazed. And I don't mean you need to be treated poorly. You should never be treated poorly. But the the challenge of the work and the speed and the idea of understanding that sense of urgency that happens in a kitchen and the precision and the collaboration that happens from the highest ranks to the lowest ranks in order to get dinner out to 150 to 300 people every night um, where people are spending a lot of money on very luxurious ingredients uh, – is really hard and really scary and really fast. And so um, young cooks, yeah, it, it needs, it's an eye-opener. You know, as a food photographer, it's a funny thing because when you collaborate with a chef, I think the first assumption is that I don't know a ton about food. But I, I spent 10 years cooking as well. And well, You're a rare breed. Yeah. Then. No, I, there's a few out there. And uh, I think that gives you an upper hand in the sense, too, that you know what to expect and I don't mean you know what the food's going to look like. You kind of ex- know how to kind of uh, assimilate into that pace, you know, into that world. Because it's a collaborative thing. It's not just you, you know, being someone in somebody else's place. Right. Commanding. I think there's two things. One, it definitely allows you to understand the language that they're speaking. Um, and that allows them to trust you um, with the thing they hold most dear, a chef uh, and their work, their craft. And so if they trust you and understand that you know the language they're speaking, you, you understand the process that they went through and, um, and the difficulty and the hard work that they do to get food from its raw state to this you know, beautiful dish that they've plated for you. Um, that's one thing. And I think it also allows you as a photographer, me as a, as a writer or a media person, to then translate that as a, you know, in an authentic way to the people who then see the finished product, whether it's your photograph or my writing or the way I talk about food on television. I definitely think that the experience I had in the chicken farm, uh, in, the, in the dishwashing station on Mikey Butts, cooking eggs and then working on the line uh, in, in a few kitchens in New York – gave me, without even knowing it at the time, but certainly allowed me to be where I am now. Sorry, I needed to do some adjusting. Um, <laughs> but, and allowed me to, to definitely, um, you know, be able to, to, to have meaningful conversations and, and, and express and, and teach people about food in a way I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick break, talk about your writing career, events coordination, and then TV personality. Not that we need more validity right. to In how much you know. In case anyone's not totally <laughs> yeah. bored uh, with what I do. Excellent. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thank you. Some exciting news. We're going to be co-hosting an event with Slow Food USA and Roberta's Pizza, the Silver Snail, 25 years of slow food. It's on Friday, October 3rd, 11.30 to 2.30 p.m. It's been 25 years since Carlo Petrini and a group of activists launched a peaceful revolution to defend regional traditions, good food, gastronomic pleasure, and a slow pace of life. The slow food movement has since evolved into a comprehensive approach to food that recognizes the strong connections between plate, planet, people, politics, and culture. Today, this movement involves thousands of projects and millions of people in more than 160 countries worldwide. So join us for a dialogue between Slow Foods founder Carlo Petrini and locavore activist Alice Waters as they reflect on the evolution of the food movement and all things slow. Again, Friday, October 3rd, 1130 to 2.30. And to RSVP, that's slowfoodusa.ticketbud.com. 
Today's program has been brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm. Spanning the rolling hills of Vermont's Champlain Valley and easternmost Washington County, New York, 300-acre Consider Bardwell Farm was the first cheese-making co-op in Vermont founded in 1864 by Consider Stebbins Bardwell himself. Rotational grazing on pesticide-free and fertilizer-free pastures produces the sweetest milk and the tastiest cheese. All of their cheeses are aged on the farm in their extensive system of caves. Consider Barwell Farm is also a big supporter of Heritage Foods USA's No Goat Left Behind program. No Goat Left Behind is a serious effort launched in 2011 by Heritage Foods USA designed to introduce goat meat to American diners and provide a sustainable end market for dairy animals. For more information, please visit www.considerbardwellfarm.com. Hey, and welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Here today with Gail Simmons, a Jill of all trades, so many things. But let's talk about Miguel Tribune, Toronto Life, National Post, and how that led you into people like Jeffrey Steingarten. Sure. Um, I, when I was at college um, at, at McGill in, in Canada, I loved writing, and I did a lot of writing, and I realized I also loved cooking. My mother was a food uh, writer. She wrote a column for Canada's biggest newspaper, the Globe and Mail, and she taught cooking. She was an amazing cook, although for some reason that still never occurred to me to be an actual career. However, I loved cooking. I loved food. And I noticed that there was no restaurant reviews in our college paper. So I asked the editor if I could start doing them. And keep in mind, you know, there was no budget for such a thing. So I was paying my way and um, eating at, you know, the dives around campus. I was by no means going out to fancy restaurants. Uh, But going to restaurants, you know, in and around what we called the McGill Ghetto um, and, you know, the area around the campus uh, reviewing restaurants and and letting people know about restaurants and um, things that they should eat uh, for students. And so I started writing and realized how much fun it was to write about food. That was my first foray into food writing. Going back and reading those articles now, it's kind of hilarious. Are, are, they, are they existing somewhere? I mean, that they, people can I mean, access? I have them. I don't think people can. A- yeah. I'm sure someone can access them, and I really hope that person does not let them be yeah. accessed by anyone else. I, I want to read some of the first ones and and you know see how that kind of reviewing style reflects your personality. On right? Television. God, yeah. I don't know if it would at all. I mean, there, who knows? It's funny. I mean, this was this was like. At the early days of the internet, this was not online. I mean, there were no blogs. There was there were no uh, there was no Yelp. There was none of that. Um, there was certainly no Instagram. This was literally just a printed paper and my very straight up restaurant review, uh, which I did, you know, for several weeks. And when I graduated, I realized this is really what I want to do. I want to be a journalist. I want to write. And I loved food and writing about food, but it still never, to me. Um, occurred that that would be something I could do full-time, although I had an inkling that's what I loved. Um, So I moved back to Toronto, and all my friends knew exactly what they wanted to do for a living. They wanted to go to law school. Most of them were going to law school or going to do their MBA or getting a master's degree or going to medical school. They all were – I had a very ambitious group of uh, friends. And I was like the lazy lout who didn't know. I kind of wanted to write. I really liked to eat. I'd done a lot of traveling. Um, and I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. And uh, through friends of friends, I ended up getting an internship at a magazine called Toronto Life, which is an award-winning publication. It's sort of like New York Magazine or Los Angeles Magazine. It's the city magazine um, of what's going on. It's a monthly publication. And I went to work there as an intern and stayed on as a, as a freelance writer for a little while as well. And I became very close with the food editor and the food writer there, the restaurant reviewer there, a brilliant writer, a lovely man by the name of James Chatto, uh, who is still a big food writer in Canada. And I followed them around and realized this is it, like this is my beat. And when I left Toronto Life, I was lucky enough to get a job first as an intern and then as an assistant editor at the National Post, another massive newspaper that was just launching when I um, was leaving Toronto Life. It was, you know, a, when was the last time? You, I mean, it doesn't even happen anymore. Big <laughs> newspapers launching across the country. And so I was working again for their weekend section, their weekend magazine, doing all sorts of things, travel, entertainment, but as much food writing as I possibly could. And when I sort of came to my plateau because there were big food writers writing for them that were doing all the major meaty stuff, I asked my editor what I should do and how I could really become a food writer. And he, that's when he said, you need to know more about food. You're 22 years old um, and 
you like to eat, but that doesn't mean you know how to write about it. So that's when I picked up and moved to New York and, and went to culinary school and worked in kitchens. And when I wasn't cooking, you know, you get out, your hours as a young cook are very long and very late. And I was the only woman in both kitchens that I cooked in. And they were tough places. They were great places for a lot of reasons, but really tough. And when all the guys would leave at the end of the night and go drinking and get up to trouble, I generally went home and read books. And you can't really go right to bed. Like you finish work at midnight and you can't go to bed. It's like coming home at six o'clock at night and going right to bed. You need to decompress, which is why they were all getting into trouble because there's not much to do at one in the morning except get into trouble or read books because I'm a bit of a nerd. And I read a book that came recommended to me called The Man Who Ate Everything, which is I believe one of the greatest food books ever written, food essay, book of essays ever written uh, by Jeffrey Steingarten, the food critic at Vogue. And reading this book was like a total um, eureka moment for me. In the book, he talks about his assistant, how one day she is running to the green market to buy vegetables for a recipe. And then the next day she's at the New York Public Library researching the history of menus in New York City. And then the next day she's running around Chinatown looking for the perfect you know, implement or a piece of equipment to make a specific dish or, um, you know, she, she kind of just had this incredible life. And I took the book to my career counselor at my culinary school at what is now is what is now ICE uh, ice at the time. It was called the Peter Cup New York cooking school because I'm old. (laughs) And, um, I took the book to him and I literally was like, see this book. Do you know who this person is? Cause I never read Vogue. I didn't know that the guy was a big deal. Jeffrey Steingarten. I was like, do you know this guy? This book is amazing, and I want to do something like what this guy's assistant does. This is the perfect job for me. I can cook. I can keep my hands dirty, but I can use my brain, and I can learn to be a great food writer. And uh, my career counselor, whose name was Steve, sort of laughed and said, yeah, I know Jeffrey. Uh, He's a big deal. Um, I actually ran into him last week, and he's looking for a new assistant. Just total serendipity. And I interviewed, and I got the job. Uh, I'm still confounded by how I got the job. It was the toughest interview I've ever been on. Um, It was a three-hour interview where he made me taste different wines, translate from French and Spanish. He literally looked at my resume, and it's like your greatest nightmare when you go in for an interview that they will take every single thing on your your resume, literally. Um, So on on my resume, it said that I spoke French and Spanish, which I do, but not every single day. So, you know, a little rusty at times. And he took uh, Ferran Adria's Ilbui cookbook off the shelf and handed it to me and said, translate this recipe for me. And he took, um, you know, a French cookbook from one of the like French masters like Roger Verger or something off the shelf and gave me, opened it to a page and told me to translate it for him from the French which I stumbled through. He was, you know, he made me taste ribs that he was making. He, he really grilled me. And I walked out of there thinking, well, I failed miserably, but at least I got to spend a night with the great Jeffrey Steingarten. Not all is lost. And he called me the next week and told me to start working. And I worked for him for two years. And it was easily the greatest education uh, I'd ever gotten. I mean, I'd ever received. He opened up a million doors for me. You know, we worked with extraordinary people all the time from Harold McGee to Danielle Boulou, um, Pierre Hermé. Uh, Jeffrey would fly off to Thailand for a month and come back and bring me tons of bugs to taste and teach me how to make, you know, curry blends with, you know, 50-pound mortar and pestles. And um, it was just an amazing education all around. It was a difficult education. He's not an easy man. Um he challenges you at every turn, but uh, the stuff I was able to do with him really changed my life. When you went to that career counselor and said, I can do all these things, I want this job, it was a time, I think, in the food media industry where that was considered like subsidiary. It wasn't considered real food job. You're um, right. And, but now it's very much parallel. You know, these things mm-hmm. have to support and bolster the rest of the food community from chefs, restaurants to television shows. But one of the people you mentioned is Daniel Baloud, who you got to work with uh, in special events and right. within that Dynex system. That, you know, that came right after Jeffrey. What's interesting is I went into the went to culinary school and thought I could just go to culinary school. And then I would graduate from culinary school. And for me, food writing went meant going to then work at like one of four places, Gourmet, Bon Appetit, Sever, or Food and Wine Magazine, right? That's what being a food writer was to me. So I thought I could graduate from culinary school and just snap my fingers and go work at the gourmet test kitchen. Um, And I learned that that wasn't the case. Number one, I still didn't know much about food. And 
you're right. They're so they were still. It was such a small industry. The writing side, the the media side of food was still very much the support of the real food industry, not part of the industry in a, in a bigger way itself. Um, so that's why I was sort of pushed into learning first to be a, a cook, which I'm so glad I did for all the reasons we've discussed. Um, but when I when I was thinking of leaving Jeffrey, it was a it was a hard time in New York. I was with Jeffrey for two years uh, until the end of 2001, really until. You know, I started with him at the very beginning of 2000, like right after the millennium, I went to work for Jeffrey, like February of 2000. And I worked with him through to the end of December 2001. And for any of us that were living in New York in the end of 2001, it was a really scary place uh, for a lot of reasons. Obviously, September 11th had just happened and and the city was economically challenged and the media was taking taking a huge hit and there were not a lot of jobs. So originally I thought, well, now I can really be a food writer. I've worked for Jeffrey Steingarten. I can now just go to Gourmet or Food and Wine and get that food writing job and I'll be set. But the world was at a standstill uh, and really the whole world was at a standstill and in a very scary place. Not to mention the fact that I wasn't an American citizen. So not only did I need a job, but I needed a visa to do the job and no one was giving those out uh, easily at the end of 2001 either. So it was really hard to find a job. And I had come to meet Danielle Boulou through Jeffrey. I'd worked on a number of projects with with Danielle um, that Jeffrey had worked on. And Jeffrey and Danielle were good friends. And um, I had also come to know Danielle's director of marketing and PR, an amazing woman named Georgette Farkas. And so when I was starting my search for a, for a next step after working for Jeffrey... I reached out to them because they'd always been so nice to me. When you work for Jeffrey Steingarten, a lot of people take pity on you <laughs> um, because they know how hard he is to work for. But they also know that if you're working for Jeffrey Steingarten, you have a brain in your head. So they're, they, you know, he has an amazing track record of of hiring really smart young women, and they all are women, uh, not for any other reason than he needs to make sure that they can't beat him up. But he's, <laughs> but he, uh, I mean, he really. They are all extraordinary women, and I'm still very close with all the women before me and after me and, and sometime within me, like at the same time as me, who have worked with him. And uh, I consider them my, my really my core, my, my girls. You know, they're just a brilliant group of women. So uh, Danielle and Georgette took pity on me a little bit and had always been really nice and always had said, if you ever need anything, let us know. How can we help you? And so I uh, reached out to them, not because I wanted a job working for Danielle, but because Danielle Boulou knows everybody, and if he's willing to help me, I'm sure he could help me with anything. So I went and interviewed and just had a sort of an informal chat with Danielle and Georgette, and they introduced me to a lot of people and, and you know whatever they could do to help they said they would do in terms of getting me into that next position as a writer. Uh, and they said, you know, we're kind of looking for someone like you. Um, you know, Danielle had three books that he was working on, opening three more restaurants within the next year, um, so many events and projects, and they were growing as a, as a restaurant group so rapidly, and Georgette was kind of on her own and really needed some more support and someone to grow her team with, but September 11th, it just happened, and they just weren't in a position to hire at the moment, so we just kept in contract, contact, and a number of jobs that I interviewed for ended up not working out for various reasons, and about two months later, Danielle and Georgette called me back and said, okay, we're ready if you are, so... It wasn't the job that I set out to get, but when Danielle Ballou offers you a job, just say yes. That's my that's my piece of advice to everyone out there. Um, so I did, and I did all those things. I helped him with three books. Um, I helped him open their restaurant in Palm Beach, their restaurant in Las Vegas, um, numerous events, all the travel that he did, all the events that he participated in, all the articles that he collaborated on with lots of different publications. I sort of was just along for the ride. At the time, his core team was like six people. So I had his ear every single day. And to work with someone like Danielle, who's really, you know, at the top of his league, uh, one of the greatest chefs living today, it was amazing. And I still really consider him not only a huge mentor, uh, you know, like a, he was my sort of fairy godfather here in New York City. From special events to special projects director at sure. Food and Wine. It's all the I mean, same. It's, it's complete. You're equipped already to, to handle that kind of job. But this is a point where you came out of the kitchen and became somebody else. Yeah. Well, not somebody else. Well, but, you arguably, know, yeah, yeah. arguably I, I, I like to say I'm not really a food critic. I just play one on TV. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yes, I did sort of become somebody yeah. else. That was unintended as well. Um, 
it was because of Danielle. Uh, Danielle is a Food and Wine Best New Chef, he, which is an award that Food and Wine Magazine gives out every year to the 10 sort of rising stars in our industry. And he was in the very first class in 1988 of this award. Him and um, a little chef named Thomas Keller, kind of a <laughs> young indie chef no one has heard about, uh, Rick Bayless, Hubert Keller. It was like an extraordinary group of chefs that first year. And Danielle was among them. So Danielle had a very long-standing relationship with Food & Wine magazine. And so I came to know them very well because over the course of my three years working for Danielle, um, I collaborated with Food & Wine on a number of things. And we were having a big event at the restaurant one day and a bunch of the Food & Wine editors were there. And one of them came up to me who I'd come to know very well, a guy named Kevin Patricio, a really smart, awesome friend, and said, you know, I'm looking to leave Food Wine. I want to open my own restaurant, but uh, we're looking, we're going to need to hire someone to replace me. Are you interested? I'd love to introduce you to our publisher and to Dana, our editor-in-chief, our publisher, Christina Gurdovich. She actually wasn't the publisher at the time, but she is now. Uh, she was the marketing vice president. And uh, if you're interested, I think that you could be great for the job. And this was finally my chance to sort of meld together everything that I'd been working towards and be in that media food writing position. Um, you know, I could use my marketing skills, my event skills, my people skills, my cooking skills, all for this magazine that I had coveted and, and longed to work for, you know, for already 10 years. Um, and so I went to work for Food & Wine in it was October 1st, 2004, which means next week is my 10-year wow, anniversary at Food Wine Magazine. Um, that's unbelievable. I've never done anything for 10 years. <laughs> so um, so I'm impressed, even if anyone else is. Um, so when I went there, I originally actually went to work uh, for part of the marketing department. I was running part of their events. And within a year of being there, I took over the Food Wine Classic in Aspen and uh, started directing that festival along with our team in Aspen that work on the festival all year round. And it was amazing. I mean, the, the Classic in Aspen is, I think, the most special weekend of the year. Um, it's 5,000 people in the most beautiful town in the world, uh, nestled in the mountains. It's uh, you know just a place where our industry gets together and shares everything upcoming for the year and where the greatest kind of chefs and winemakers and consumers who just love to eat and drink can all get together for one sort of wild party. But it also is a really um, amazing sort of coming together of, of meeting of food minds, I think. So it was great to work on that festival. And it was around the exact same time that I started that job that Christina Gerdovich, um, our, our uh, publisher at Food & Wine, came to me and said, so you're going to do this job running the classic, but meanwhile we were approached by Bravo Network, Bravo Television, uh, to work on a possible reality show. This was in the end of 2005, um, and, you know, we're not kind of sure exactly what it's going to be. I know it seems kind of scary reality television, but we have a, a chance to be, you know, in on the ground floor of what could be really exciting. And if you're willing to go take a screen test, um, you might be able to be our representative on the show. And so they sent me up to 30 Rock to talk to Bravo. And I didn't even know what a screen test was. I, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, so, but I, I went there and I spoke to them and a month later I was in San Francisco shooting the first episode of Top Chef. I mean, there's sort of a yada, yada, yada in the middle there. Yeah, yeah. Other things that happened, but, but ultimately um, I had no idea that I would be on a show that would last more than a season, let alone And multiple iterations too, you know, Top sure. Chef desserts, right now duels Top is Chef happening. Du yeah, we did desserts for two years, Masters did five seasons, who knows if it'll come back or not, that'd be great. Um, and, and Top Chef Duels, which is on the air right now. Yeah, whereas that is more of a competitive judging kind of show. Yes. You also have FYI uh, Networks, The Feed. We, yes. Max Silvestri was on the show not too know. long ago. And, you know, it's, it's apropos that he's a comedian because he's hilarious, but it seems like a different look at food, whereas one is, is more in the kitchen, this is more outside of the box. Yes, yes. W what's been the difference between your role in those two shows? Well, you know, Top Chef... Is, uh, is me in a, in a very specific role, for sure. Um, I'm a judge on the show. Um, the show has a very set formula. Even, even Top Chef Duels, which changes the formula a little bit, I'm there to, to judge the food, to choose a winner, um, and, and to kind of give constructive criticism to professional chefs. Um, and I've been doing that for many years, and I love my job. You know, no two days are alike. It's been... 12 extraordinary seasons and all these great spinoffs, but I've 
always wanted to do more in terms of my knowledge of food and just show a different side of myself. Um, I love the aspect of me that gets to teach about food and discover new food and discover new talent. And so I, um, that's what sort of draw, drew me to The Feed in the first place. The Feed is a new show. It just launched a few weeks ago on FYI. And it's myself and, and Max Silvestri, one of the funniest people I know, and Marcus Samuelson, an acclaimed amazing chef from Red Rooster in Harlem, who I've known for a very long time, and who also loves biltong, I will say, um, just in case you're wondering. Um, and that the feed is a totally different concept. It's us being silly and sort of taking the piss out of food a little bit, not taking it too seriously, taking food seriously in terms of the people who make it and how much we love it, but really talking about current trends in the world of food and going on these great adventures, daring each other to do silly, outrageous things in the food space and not get too caught up in the seriousness of it all, the preciousness of it all. So um, the three of us one day are trying to make what would be the next great mashup. You know, everybody knows the Cronut. The world went crazy for the Cronut a year ago. And so we're competing against each other in a very lighthearted way. It's not like a serious competition at all. Um, as to who can come up with what would be the next great Cronut. Um so I make something called the poutinesicle. You know, the cronut is made up of a French croissant and an American donut because the creator, Dominique Ansel, is French and lives in America. So I took the um, the idea of poutine from my homeland in Canada and paired it sort of with the popsicle, put it on a stick and made it something that um, I thought could be the next great mashup food. Um, so it's kind of doing fun, silly things like that on a recent episode we all were making fun of how artisanal and sort of twee the world of food has become, especially here uh, in Brooklyn, if I may say. I am a Brooklynite, and I love it here. But, you know, there's a, there's a certain amount of preciousness to the very artisanal luxury food that all is very expensive and um, and handcrafted. And so as much as we appreciate it and love that more people are taking an interest in it, we also wanted to poke a little fun of it, so we all set out to make what we thought would be the next great artisanal food, and I spent an afternoon make, learning how to make organic artisanal gum at a food incubator in Brooklyn with um, a company called Simply Gum, which I think is one of the only organic, yeah. all-natural gums on the market. They're the only ones that use actual chiclet, I think. Yeah, they yeah. use chiclet, exactly. So I learned about the chiclet plant, um, which is why chiclets are called chiclets, in case anyone didn't know. And uh, learned about making the ch you know, chicle, real real gum, organic real gum from the chicle plant. And then I infuse it with all sorts of silly um, artisanal flavors like um, hickory smoked maple and chili blueberry and fennel grapefruit. Um, and I made all this really fun gum. And I called it, I had just had a baby right before we shot this show. I had a beautiful baby girl. And so I called the gum Simmons and Daughters Crafted by Tiny Hands in Brooklyn. <laughs> And, uh, you know, just kind of fun, silly things that actually you learn a lot from. I really learned a lot uh, making the feed. I got to meet some really great uh, purveyors and farmers and, and do some really fun stuff and really kind of educate people about where things come from, but at the same time, not take any of it too seriously. And we all got to be a little silly and really just be ourselves on the show, which is what I wanted to do more than anything. I want to reference your wonderful book, Talking With My Mouth Full, My Life. As a professional eater, which came out, I think, in 2012. It did, yeah. So if you want to know more about Gail, there it yeah, is. Yeah, that's every detail. I just read you. I just basically told yeah. you the cliff notes. But <laughs> but yes, there's lots more detail in there. Um, what's not in there is the time you cried about an omelet. I have some inside information. Oh, that's that, true. That I think more. it is in there somewhere. Oh, yeah? uh, it must be because that's that's what got me my job yeah. on Top Chef. Um, that's true. Um, Michael does have the inside track <laughs> because his wife uh, and I work together at Food and Wine. And I love her. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I, I went to, I went to 30 Rock to do this screen test to be on Top Chef, really having no idea. This was the early days of reality television, right? When no one really knew, there certainly was no other food reality television on at all. And no one really knew if this reality thing was going to stick around or not, uh, reality competition shows. And they stuck me in a room and were asking me questions. And one of the questions the producer asked me was, what was the worst food experience you've had recently? And I told him a story about how just a few weeks before I had gone out for breakfast with my 
then boyfriend, now husband, and we'd gone to a diner near our house and I'd ordered an omelet. My husband warned me against it because he knew that I'm very particular about eggs and most diners aren't going to really make a classic French omelet. They're going to make, you know, sort of like overcooked mass of rubber. And he knew I wasn't going to like it, but I was in the mood for an omelet, so I ordered it anyway. And of course it came out and it was like a rubber shoe. It was totally burned. And I'd asked for it, you know, to be made loose and soft. I don't like when there's that brown sort of burnt crust on my omelet. And of course they didn't do that. So I asked very politely if they wouldn't mind remaking it. I just wanted it to be a little looser if they didn't mind. And I'm sure they spat in my food. And when they brought it back, it was totally raw. And I don't know, I guess I woke up on the wrong side of the bed that day. And I looked at this raw mass of like jiggling mess that of course I couldn't eat. And I just burst into tears at the table, uh, which was really embarrassing. I don't do that often. But at that moment, I just was so frustrated and upset about the situation. And my husband had to like whisk me out of the restaurant and take me across the street for a falafel or something. Um, so I told this story to the producer at Bravo. And a few years later, when we were talking about the show, he told me that it was that moment where he knew that I was going to be on the show with them and that they were going to hire me for the job because they had, ne- I mean, this, they, they didn't know much about the food world. And I guess how annoying we are, but also, no, they didn't know that anyone could get so passionate and upset about food. And, of course, for reality television, uh, Bravo was like, wow, if she could cry over an omelet, this is definitely the person we want on our show. Um, They just had never met anyone who would get so upset about something like that. And uh, so there it was. That was why I'm on Top Chef, I guess. You should ask Megan the time she cried about a bagel. I will. Yeah, so oh, pr- apparently that, we're kindred spirits. Yeah, For the true. record, I haven't cried on the show about anything. <laughs> um, although there are times I've wanted to. But I know we're running out of time, but a really important facet of what you do on top of everything else are things like common threads with Chef Art Smith, Oprah's old chef, yeah. um, teaching underprivileged kids about nutrition, um, and also founding Food & Wine's Grow for Good campaign, which is uh, benefiting wholesome wave of mm-hmm. Mich- Michelle, Michelle Michon. Michon. Um, and that is about sustainable, sustainability, agriculture, farms. But you talk about education, and it's not just about telling the origins of food or the techniques behind how to make something, but you know, uh, providing for a future. You have a young daughter. I you, do. You know, how important is it to be that kind of active in the food community too? Um, I think it's imperative. You know, I I spend a lot of my time eating really delicious, beautiful food. And I it is not lost on me that that is a great privilege. Um, and that there are, you know, most of, most of the country, let alone the world, does not have that opportunity, far from it. Um, and just doesn't have access to simple nutritious food let alone being able to go out for dinner and eat the way that that you and I can and so i think anyone in the food industry most of the most of the people i know every chef and 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 food media person i know uh feels similar that if we are able to have this privilege we need to give back and and try to make sure that as many people as possible can eat well and 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 have access to good quality food and that's a that's a major um epidemic in our in our country certainly that there just is not accessibility to fresh food um where it should be and so even when people want to eat it they just can't find it there's you know food deserts um larger than any real desert in this country um and and it it, it's disheartening and i really feel like it is something that um i have a a responsibility to to work on and to help in any way I can. So I spend as much time as I can with working with organizations like Common Threads, um, like City Harvest. I, I'm on the board of City Harvest. Um, and and then, of course, with Michelle Nishan at Wholesome Wave and, and Food and Wine's Grow for Good campaign. Not only, you know, and that's working with different segments of populations and, and different initiatives. So, of course, working with children, teaching children how to cook, um, teaching children about nonviolence and about, um, you know, how to eat well and, and, and how to work together and the lessons that can come from sitting around a table together. Um, but also, you know, working with Michelle Nishan at Wholesome Wave is even more so about lobbying and, and activism about getting that access to the places that need it the most, um, neighborhoods and communities that have no access to fresh food. So whether that's opening farmers markets in those areas where food stamps are taken at 
you know, two to one value um, or lobbying about the farm bill, um, trying to change Congress's view of how government subsidies should be spent. There's just such a massive conversation and so many ways to be involved in understanding the um, the issues of why this whole country can't eat well. Um, and it's by far a complicated and long conversation, but one that if I can even so much as spread the word on the smallest bit, I feel like I've done some good. I mean, that is the underlying moral obligation of HeritageRadioNetwork.org right. as well. You know, we have these fun food conversations, but in all truth, you know, th- there's something that we have to do to, you know, provide for future generations. So I'm glad That's that right. you can speak on both parts. Definitely. And, you know, it's... Um, I say even on Top Chef, my greatest reward or, you know, being on television in general, um, my greatest reward is when someone comes up to me, which happens more and more and and makes me so happy when someone comes up to me and says, you know, because I watched your show with my son, he now loves to cook and he wants to be a chef and he's in the kitchen with me and yesterday he wanted to make broccoli with me. So we learned, you know, I taught him how to roast the broccoli or whatever it is and just getting more people to have that conversation with their children to to think about where their food comes from, to think about how to cook it, to spend time cooking together and eating together, um, reading reading food, reading menus, trying something new, going out, trying a new restaurant, um, trying a new ingredient, bringing it home from the supermarket or the farmer's market. Um, all of that counts. All of that spreads the word, spreads the gospel. So I feel like that is my job. I haven't really figured it out yet, but I kind of want to, you know, like, like drinking games when you watch a movie and something happens and you have to take a shot. Sure. Uh, almost like a food game with reality food TV that mm-hmm. for every hour you watch of that, you have to give back in some way or participate. And I, I haven't formalized I like that, that yet, but if we can maybe brainstorm yeah, an idea. Yeah, working on that. I, I'm happy to get drunk uh, <laughs> and give back on your behalf when Excellent. you figured it out. Thank you so much for being on gailsimmons.com. You can check out everything that you're doing there. And uh, we really appreciate you being in the studio today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Excellent. You've been listening to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.